We're in the middle of a series titled The Gifts of Christmas, and today's message is called The Gift of Joy for Seekers. We'll be looking at the story of the wise men who come and visit Jesus, offering their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi, or wise men, were the first gift givers at Christmas. You could say they inspired our gift giving at this time of year. And depending on how you feel about your Christmas shopping right now, maybe your response is, thanks a lot, Magi. No, we can't put our American consumerism on them. As we'll see in a moment, they had good reason to be bringing gifts. Think with me for a moment of some of the best gifts you have received. Maybe it was when you were a kid and you really, really wanted a certain toy and for days you waited for Christmas Day to see if you'd receive it. Like little Ralphie fixated on his Red Ryder BB gun from the movie A Christmas Story, you knew you would be happy if you could just have that toy. Some gifts are more meaningful than others. On Christmas morning in 1998, I was surprised to open a package under my tree with an engagement ring in it. True story. Andy, my boyfriend at the time, had chosen that moment to surprise me with his proposal. And as the photo capturing the moment, which I will not show you, reveals, I was surprised. That's clear because of the Christmas sweater I'm wearing. Yes. Some gifts we've received don't come wrapped under a tree on Christmas morning. In fact, they can't actually be purchased. They are freely given to us. We long for something desperately, and lo and behold, we get it. I still remember being pregnant with our third child when we were at the ultrasound debating whether or not to be surprised about what we were having. We had two boys at the time. We were gonna love whoever God gave us. But my mom had died a few years prior, and I was really missing the mother-daughter relationship, wondering if I would ever have that again. The ultrasound tech heard all of this debating back and forth, and eventually she just really highlighted the area that it was clear we were having a girl. And I was elated. It was like some small part of what I had lost had been given back to me. You know that feeling. That feeling when you've longed for something and it's given to you. You pass your driver's license test. You get the scholarship or you make the team. She said yes to the date. You get the job. Your offer on the house is accepted. You're gonna be parents, either by adoption or pregnancy. The biopsy is negative. The procedure was successful. He's coming off the ventilator. When we've longed for something for a long time and we get it, we can only respond in one way. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then there are moments which are not necessarily thanks, though gratitude is still underlying them, but more like, wow. Those are the moments that arrest us in the midst of our mundane day-to-day drudgery and make us alert to something greater than all we are currently consumed by. The crisp white carpeting of a freshly fallen snow. A breathtaking sunset over a lake. The scent of a newborn baby. 
I like how Anne Lamott, in her book, Help Thanks Wow, writes about these positive wows we experience. Listen to this excerpt. It's a couple of paragraphs. <clears throat> wow is often uttered with the gasp, with a sharp intake of breath, when we can't think of another way to capture the sight of shocking beauty, sudden insight, or an unexpected flash of grace. Wow means we are not dulled to wonder. It's about having one's mind blown by the mesmerizing or the miraculous. A child seeing the ocean for the first time or a teenager's Christmas car, secondhand, but still. Wow, because you are almost speechless, but not quite. You can manage barely this one syllable. When we are stunned to the place beyond words, we're finally starting to get somewhere. The words wow and ah are the same height and width, all W's and short values, they, vowels, they could dance together. Especially when, maybe when, the glory or goodness of God is given. Wow is a reverberation, wow, 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 wow. Our story today describes just such a wow experience. The wow of encountering the one born king. The magi are drawn in by the magnetic power and pull of Jesus. They are compelled by a sign and propelled to search for him. They are overcome by joy when they find him. They are undone and fall on their knees and worship before him. They understand reality is altered by this baby's coming. And in that way, the Magi serve as a model and a reminder for us this Christmas. My hope is that in looking more closely at the Magi who are looking at Jesus, we too will be drawn in to bow down before him. Hear now the word of the Lord as told in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and um, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, 
they return to their country by another route. I want to look at this story focusing on three different scenes. Scene one in verses one and two, which takes place in the east where the wise men first see the star and embark on their journey. Scene two, verses three to eight, which takes place in Jerusalem, where they interact with King Herod and the Jewish scribes and leaders. And scene three, verses nine to 12, which takes place at the house, where they finally find the newborn king and worship him. We'll look at each of these three scenes in turn, and then we'll consider what they mean for us today. Scene one, the wise men see the star in the east and set out to find the king. Verse one introduces us to these mysterious seekers. After Jesus was born during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, that's likely Persia or modern day Iraq, come to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, most of us get our perception of these guys from the old Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And I'm sorry to say that song is just not accurate historically. For starters, there are probably not three of them. We assume that from the number of gifts we bring, but as we see in a moment when they enter Jerusalem, they raise such a raucous, there's probably an entire entourage. In addition, they are most certainly not kings. They bring gifts fit for a king, but they are not royalty. Some in the first century did not respect them. To them, they were magi, from which we get the English word magicians. But to many, they were scholars, experts in their fields of celestial beings, stargazers. Yes, they predate our modern study of astronomy with fancy telescopes and elaborate physics calculations. But these people believed heaven and earth were so interconnected that any important event on earth would be seen in the heavens. So they tracked the movement of the stars and interpreted their meaning, thus earning them the title wise men. You can imagine how valuable that could be to predict big changes on earth from what was happening in the skies. And it appears from the gifts they bring, they have some measure of wealth. And here they are going about their routine work when something strange happens. Now, we don't actually know what they saw in the sky. There's been speculation over what caused it. Was it Halley's Comet? Was it the joining of two planets, Jupiter and Saturn? We don't know. One is reminded of God leading the Israelites in the wilderness by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night in the book of Exodus. Whatever this, the cause for this bright star, it revealed to them through their own field of expertise that some event had just offered, altered their reality significantly. A king had been born. As scholars, they believe their findings. Now there's so much we wish we knew in this story. How many times did they retest and observe? Was everybody all in right away, or did somebody need to be convinced by more data? How long did it take them to prepare for their journey? Because it's clear they are very intentional about it. Traveling over a thousand miles in first century conditions is no small feat. You gotta want it. And they did. 
pondering over what gift would be most fitting, gathering food, supplies, and money for the journey, taking a leave of absence. These men were resolute in their desire to find this baby. They say only two sentences in the entire story, but it's enough to summarize their determination. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They are drawn in to bow down. I wonder, what exactly was it that drew them in most? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, so says the Christmas carol. What was it they were most longing for, hoping for, that drew them in? Whatever it was, they go in search for the child. And here's what I find intriguing and encouraging. Here are true outsiders, people who by all accounts should not be responding to Jesus' birth. First of all, they're outsiders in race. They're Gentiles. This is a king for the Jewish people, remember? And second, they're outsiders in profession, astrology. The Old Testament had warned God's people about looking to the stars or to mediums or anything other than him for guidance. It's clear that in the next scene, the wise men don't actually know what to do. They know enough. They figure Jerusalem's the capital city of the Jewish people. That's where the temple is. That's as good a place as any to look for royalty. But once they get to Jerusalem, they have to ask the locals for more intel. This is outside their field of expertise. Jewish prophecy about the Messiah was not in their coursework. But that's what's so beautiful about our God. There are no outsiders with him. He wants all to come to know him. Right from the start, God is setting the message straight. Anybody can get in on this, including those, perhaps especially those, who are far away geographically and metaphorically speaking. If you're here, either in person or online, and you're feeling a little out of place, like you don't even know these songs or even where to find the book of Matthew in the Bible, let me encourage you to hang in there. We are so glad you're here. I can tell you definitively, there are people from all different backgrounds here and at all stages on the journey, and that's what we want because that's what God wants. So keep seeking, because it's worth finding. God meets these seekers through their own field of expertise. He speaks in a way they can hear. And God still does this today. God speaks to people in their own dialect. I know doctors who've experienced miraculous healings, and they can't explain it. Talk about getting the attention of someone. I've seen God get the attention of people through dreams. I've seen rational minds satisfied by intellectual arguments and books, artists moved by poems or the power of music. And of course, he uses the Bible to speak to us. Did you catch how even the wise men were instructed in the only Bible that existed at the time, the prophecies in Micah 5.2 about where the Savior would be born? That's why we call the Bible God's word, because he speaks to us regularly through it. Now, in truth, God often uses multiple means of getting our attention. He speaks in as many ways possible so we don't miss it. 
So what are the signs you're seeing lately? Maybe they're worth taking seriously. How might God be speaking to you right now, drawing you in? Who else do you know is scanning the stars for hope, direction, meaning, clarity, what really matters? There are a lot of people rethinking things these days. COVID has made us reconsider much. What matters most? What's real? Is death really the end? Are we open to seeing seekers among us? And are we making their journey easier? Or are we impeding them in any way? Because the most ironic part of this story is what we see in verses 3 to 8. Or scene 2, King Herod and the Jewish leaders' indifference to Jesus. You simply can't miss how Matthew, our writer, is contrasting the Magi and the Jewish leaders. I mean, here are the wise men who know nothing of the culture or religion of the Jewish people, who are over a thousand miles away, but who, in seeing the sign, put forth all the effort to embark on a journey to find him. Meanwhile, you have the Jewish leaders who are a whopping five or six miles from Jerusalem, two-hour trek even in first-century standards, who are told their long-awaited Messiah, the one prophesied about for hundreds of years, has come, and they can't even bother to go check it out. Now that is astounding indifference. I think of when Minneapolis hosted the NCAA Final Four at U.S. Bank Stadium in 2019. People were flying in from all over the country to be here, and they had paid a lot of money to do so. There were free events earlier in the day for, for kids, and my husband, a big sports fan, really wanted to go. I eventually agreed, begrudgingly, do I have to go all the way to U.S. Bank Stadium to see teams I don't care about for a sport I'm way too short to have ever played? It just didn't matter to me. I'm sorry to say my indifference and apathy isn't reserved for the NCAA alone. Sometimes, as Christmas approaches, I feel unable to enter into the awe of it. I'm too busy or exhausted to take it in. Like a parent raising a young child, sometimes after the initial awe wears off, we become accustomed to the ordinary. We lose our sense of wonder. We need moments of wow to remind us what is true and what we once knew. Then there's the whole issue of Herod's resistance toward Jesus coming. He does not like the fact that there is another king in town and he takes drastic measures to reduce the threat, as we will see next week. I've spoken more at length about this and the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus in the last two previous years of teaching this text, so I'm not going to elaborate on that now. But suffice it to say, those verses 3 to 8 show how some, like the Magi, respond with adoration for this king, and others, like Herod or the Jewish leaders, respond with anger or apathy. I wonder if the wise men had a check in their spirit when Herod asked to know Jesus' exact location, the coordinates of the target, so to speak. Verse 12 and following tells us God intervenes supernaturally, again, this time by a dream, ordering the family to seek refuge in Egypt to spare Jesus' life, which brings a whole new meaning to those gifts. 
They aren't just royalty for a king. They're provision for a family fleeing for their lives. Gold, first century Venmo or Apple Pay, frankincense and myrrh, both lightweight for travel, but precious stones which would fetch a nice price in a foreign country. But the last scene is the one I want to linger on, scene three, where the wise men find the one born king and worship him. Verses 9 to 11, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, unfortunately, our nativity scenes with the Holy Family, angels and shepherds and magi all together as if they overlapped for some portion of the evening in this amazing photo op further misconstrues the events of Jesus' birth. The magi don't actually visit Jesus on the night of his birth. Verse 11 says on coming to the house, not the stable or inn, they saw the child, not the baby, and later on in verse 16, when Herod's determining the date of Jesus' birth based on the Magi's visit, he estimates it could be any time in the last two years. So some amount of time, up to two years, have passed. Joseph, remember, is from Bethlehem, so it's likely he had extended family in town. It would make sense for this family who'd just given birth to stay put for a while with family to help care for them. And the star doesn't actually lead them to the, the whole way from the east to where Jesus is lying. It rises in the east, and the Magi head towards Jerusalem. It's only after talking to Herod that it reappears, leading them to the child. And this is the part of the story where I want to press pause and linger, because this is the wow moment. Verse 10 in the NIV, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That's good, but that translation doesn't really convey the emphasis Matthew uses when he writes it in Greek. The English Standard Version, ESV, the NASB, New American Standard, both get closer by translating it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew piles on all the superlatives to make his point. Not they rejoiced, nor they rejoiced with joy. Not even they rejoiced with great joy, but they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It doesn't get more superlative than that. This echoes what the angel told the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth, Luke 2.10. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Can you imagine the moment? They have traveled over a thousand miles in first century road conditions plodding through deserts, climbing mountains, navigating new countries and cultures, and now they have found him. They've completed their quest. And what's their response? Wow, wow, wow. They can't stop smiling. They can't take their eyes off him. They can't not touch him. They can't believe their good fortune. All that they have been seeking and longing and hope for is here. Yes, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. It's really true. This life-altering news is real. Wow. Ah. And then verse 11 says, they bowed down and worshipped him. 
bowed down. The word does not mean just bending the knee despite all the images of the nativity. I could not find a graphic of the wise men prostrate all the way down. It was disappointing. Some artist, please create that. We have very little experience with bowing down. The only posture remotely familiar to this is when a man drops to his knees and proposes to a hopeful bride. And even that posture is so unusual in our culture, that's usually the moment the woman knows he's about to propose. We sometimes half-jokingly, half-seriously do this with our hands when we want to honor people in our midst who are doing amazing, incredible things, healthcare providers, educators, parents of young children, bless you. But faces planted all the way down in the dirt, that's another level. That's not really a posture you and I have muscle memory for. We want to stand on our own two feet. We want to be the star, star and center stage. It's hard to bow down to another when we're hustling to promote our own press. But these men are wise, for in seeing Jesus as who he is, they respond with the only appropriate posture. Overwhelmed with joy, they found him. They fall prostrate on the ground and worship before him. And it seems so effortlessly they open their treasures and present to him their gifts because he is worthy. They are drawn in to bow down. The star that compelled and propelled their seeking then brings joy and bowing in reverence and awe before him. They offer all that they have to him. What a model and reminder for us of the proper response to Jesus. How are they able to do it? What is it that they see when they look at that child? It's actually not clear from the passage just how much the wise men understand who Jesus is. Their knowledge seems pretty limited, in fact. They don't know the other prophecies about Jesus, that he's the light in the darkness, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the savior for all people. And I actually kind of like that. I once had a professor say that discipleship or following Jesus is giving all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. And perhaps that is enough. By their own admission in verse 2, this is what they know. The one who has been born king of the Jews. He's a baby and he's a king. When this baby grows up at some distant point in the future, this child will rule. His kingdom and reign will be ushered in at some point in the future. Now we, who have the benefit of the rest of the Bible, God's word to us, have so much more to go on than these guys. We can see Jesus for who he is in an even fuller picture. We know this isn't just any baby. This is Emmanuel, God himself with us, wrapped in human flesh and blood. This isn't just any star. This is the bright morning star, which, when God's new kingdom comes to earth, will make the sun irrelevant. This isn't just any shepherd, as the prophecy in Micah told the Magi. This is the good shepherd who has come not only to guide his people on the way, but also to lay down his life for the sheep. 
This isn't just a baby who avoids death by evil King Herod. He will overcome death. You watch him in the tomb on Easter Sunday. He will beat death at death's own game. And this is the one true king who has not only come to the earth once, some 2,000 years ago, but who will return at some unknown day in the future, thanks be to God, to usher in his kingdom and reign of righteousness and justice and peace. Amen? So yes, Magi, bow before this king. Fall on your face before this baby. That's the only fitting response. Wow. Or as the angels are singing, even now in the throne room, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power forever. City Church, let's let the Magi lead us this Christmas season. Like them, let's be drawn in by the magnetic pull of the Christ child only to bow down and fall before him, for he is worthy. May we, in looking to them who were looking to Jesus, be moved to worship this one who has come and who is coming again. So let it be. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we are in awe of you. We give you thanks for the gift of your son. We want to be like the Magi. We get distracted. There's other countries we kind of want to visit. We get discouraged by all the roadblocks in our way. Would you now lead us to your son, that in seeing him fully, we may be moved to worship. We would be strengthened for the rest of the journey, and we would also be able to point others to this one who has come, and thank you is coming again. We pray in your son's name.